again to the Arlington Baptist Podcast. So glad that you're able to join me again today. And uh, we are in the dog days of summer here in Texas where I live. It is very hot and uh, probably hot where you're at if you're anywhere in the U.S. We hear that most of the states are under a heat wave right now, but of course in Texas it's especially hot in the summer. And so we're trying to stay cool in the A.C. all that we can. Uh, So I'm coming to you uh, from a rather cool uh, room, thankfully, so I don't have to deal with the heat. But we are going to continue our study in the book of Revelation. It's been a great study. I hope you've been able to uh, join all the episodes from the very beginning. It's been going on for quite a while, but I uh, told you when we first started the verse-by-verse study of Revelation that it would take a while. I knew it would. I've been through the book before with people and and know that if you're going to do any justice to a book like Revelation, it's going to take some time. So we got through last week in our episode through chapter 20, verse 6. And so we just have the rest of this chapter and two more to go. So I can see the end in sight, but it's going to be a little bit longer. And uh, as I was telling you, there's some really just magnificent monumental events that happen in these last several chapters. The whole book is just magnificent. We know that Revelation is the last book of the Bible for a reason. It's the consummation, the ending of all things, the end of time and history as we know it. Uh, And it's amazing how the Bible starts from the beginning uh, with creation and ends with consummation, ends with the end of all things and eternity uh, where time will be kept no more. Well, let me jump back into the text and remind you that in chapter 20, uh, we're dealing with uh, the end of a lot of things in some regards. We saw that the false prophet and the Antichrist or the beast were cast into the lake of fire at the end of chapter 19 when Jesus returns at the Battle of Armageddon. We summed all that up for you. And then we saw how the the devil or the dragon, as he's called here, uh, the serpent, Uh, Satan is cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and that thousand years correlates to that great event or 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 a time on on earth that we call the millennial kingdom or the literal reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. I do hold to a premillennial, pre-tribulational view of eschatology or end time events, and I think it does fit the best and most consistently into all of the scripture on end time prophecy. Well, we finished in verse 6 by uh, referring to this thousand years several times in the text. I don't know how anyone could not believe in a thousand year reign of Christ. There's all millennialists, people who don't believe there'll be any millennium. Uh, I don't know how they get around these things other than to take them allegorically or non-literally. And that is always a dangerous uh, precedent or approach to Scripture. Uh, We should never set aside a non-literal, or I'm sorry, set aside a literal view of Scripture unless the symbolism is very clear and, in fact, maybe in other places it is explained. Anyway, uh, during that thousand years when the devil, of course, is in the bottomless pit where he's chained and and sealed. Uh, The Lord will be reigning over the earth, and we saw about the reign of his people. 
uh, with him. I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. We believe that the most faithful and dedicated and devoted uh, of God's people will receive the greatest reward. And one of those rewards will be ruling and reigning with Christ. Uh, Paul said it in that little statement in 2 Timothy 2, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Uh, now we're going to go back to Satan and, and really his demise, his final ending. And this is a, uh, an important and, and um, in, in some way a pleasurable passage for Christians as we finally see uh, the devil get his due. Uh, he has been, in a sense, the great enemy of all truth, uh, running havoc over the earth, uh, harassing God's people, accusing the brethren, all these other things. He's the arch enemy of God, the great deceiver uh, of the world, and he's finally going to get the punishment that he has coming to him. So let's begin back in the text, and I'll read from verses 7 through 9 as we'll see uh, his final demise actually in the next verse, in verse 10, but Let's see what happens to him at the conclusion of the thousand-year reign. It says in verse 7, And when the thousand years are expired, uh, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's stop right there and talk about these verses. Remember I told you that this thousand-year imprisonment of the devil um, is literal because we now have a time when he's allowed out of the bottomless pit for a little time. Remember a little season. It said in verse 3, and this is going to now pick up on that and tell us why he's let out. And to, to understand this, I've got to go back and explain a little bit more how I refer to the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, the prophets, especially in the Old Testament, Isaiah through Malachi, uh, deal a lot with the millennial kingdom, the kingdom of, of Messiah on earth, Jesus Christ. And I don't have time to develop this thoroughly. I, I dealt with it more in the a series on end times prophecy called Understanding the End. It's also on our earlier podcasts previous to this study. So if you're interested in a more thorough look at these different periods of end times prophecy, I would suggest going to that. But anyway, um, to understand the, the this passage, we have to remind ourselves that during the millennial kingdom, there'll be mortals on earth. Uh, and to make this as brief as I can... Uh, remember, people that go into the millennium will uh, come out of the tribulation. Uh, all believers, we think, are raptured prior to the tribulation, that seven-year period. But those who get saved during the tribulation, and we studied all that as part of Revelation, uh, they will be blessed by going into the kingdom to enjoy the reign of Christ on earth. And they will be what we would refer to as mortals. Uh, and they will have children. And uh, there's passages in the Old Testament that talk about children being 100 years old because people will go back to living long lives, very much like the pre-flood uh, period. Before the flood, man lived 900 and plus years, many of them. We see those, those re records referred to in, 
in Genesis 5 through, through, uh, uh, through the flood, at least, Genesis 9. But anyway, um, during that period, uh, there will be mortal beings that will be sinners uh, converted. Those who go into the kingdom will all be saved, but they'll be saved mortals, saved sinners like we are today. Their children, however, will have to get saved. They'll have to come to Christ and be converted. And because of the choice that they will have, which God gives to all men, I believe free will and volitional decision for the gospel is taught throughout Scripture. There's no such thing as a robotic uh, kind of forced conversion. This idea, idea of irresistible grace that's taught in Calvinism is such a misnomer and a contradiction of terms. Uh, grace cannot be irresistible. It cannot be forced. That's like saying love can be forced. It's impossible. So anyway, the mortals that have children during the kingdom for that thousand years, their children will have a choice to make. And the reason I believe that Satan is loosed at the end of the thousand years is for them to make their final decision. Will we follow Messiah Jesus Christ and trust him and believe on him and be blessed by going into an eternal state with him, which we'll get to next. That's the time where there'll be a new heavens and new earth where time itself will be kept no longer. But to sum this up, they will have a choice. And this is why the devil is allowed out. God always gives men a choice. Back in Deuteronomy, it says, I'm summing up, paraphrasing, God says through Moses, I set before you uh, a, 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 an open road, an open decision a decision to make, uh, to either follow me uh, to life and obey me or to disobey and, and to follow death and destruction. Uh, that's the choice that all men have. And so this is the choice that the millennial mortals will have. And tragically, we see from this passage I just read that a good number of them will actually choose to follow the devil in his last attempt to dethrone Jesus Christ and overcome God. Remember, the devil's first initial rebellion was to try to dethrone God and become God himself. Of course, that was futile and useless, and he was driven out of heaven. But now he tries one more last-ditch attempt. And so it says, And he shall go out to deceive the nations which were in the four quarters of the earth. Remember, the four quarters of the earth are just a statement that's used to describe man all over the earth north, south, east, and west. It by no means justifies a flat earth position. That's nonsense. We know the Bible is a globe. It's a circle. God sets on the circle of the earth. Uh, but it's simply a description of man all over the earth. Now, one of the most difficult and perplexing parts of verse 8 and this final rebellion is the phrase Gog and Magog that's brought up. Now, uh, Without going into too much detail, we know that the phrase Gog and Magog takes us back to an event that I have not yet described at all in Revelation because I don't think it's necessarily taught in Revelation, but it is part of end times prophecy, and I go into it in a little bit of detail at least in the eschatology study earlier, but it's brought up in this a passage in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and that uh, those two chapters are dealing with a battle, uh, or might be better called an invasion, by some uh, confederate nations north of Israel that come down and invade Israel. I'm summing it up in, in as quickly as I can. 
they'll invade Israel. And Gog apparently is the title for the leader of this uh, confederation. And Magog tends to be, at least most scholars believe, the name of the confederation itself. Not necessarily just a land, but maybe the confederation of various nations that come together to try to destroy Israel, the little nation. Now, the biggest question, the biggest uh, puzzle of the whole Gog-Magog invasion of Israel in Ezekiel is when does it happen? Nobody can really be sure. I have some uh, good friends, a, a good converted Jewish friend of ours uh, who's a missionary, Brother Phil Sawalowski, has been on these podcast, in fact, a number of, uh, maybe a year ago or so, I don't know. But anyway, he he uh, has written on this and has some uh, very good insight into this, but nobody can be sure. Some say it happens before the, the, the rapture of God's people. Some think it happens right after that. Some people think it happens during the tribulation. Definitely, I think it's one of those three. But the perplexing thing, the hardest thing of interpreting verse 8 here in our text is why does he throw Gog and Magog into this here? It's in, it's right, right after some parentheses, or, or I'm sorry, some uh, commas, like it's a parenthetical just thrown in here. Um, the only thing I could say is I do not think it's the same battle. I think the battle of Gog and Magog from Ezekiel 38 and 39 is very specific. And it's even described that Israel, by God's intervention, destroys this, I think it's a Russian confederation, uh, we see the names of several places in those chapters that most scholars, conservative scholars on prophecy, believe may be the ancient city of uh, the title for Moscow and uh, Tubolsk or uh, so forth. Anyway, um, I think perhaps the reason he throws Gog and Magog in here is simply because the destruction of the devil and those who follow him here will be similar to the total destruction that we uh, read about in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that uh, involves Gog and Magog. That, that may be a very simplistic interpretation of this, and I'm not going to say that I would you know, stand dogmatically on that, but it is a very hard uh, inclusion here, a very hard addition to this. If you take it out of there, it becomes a little bit easier. We do know that what happens is Satan uh, deceives, how he does, we're not sure. He, he, he deceives the mortal um, people who are alive and have not yet been converted. That seems to be the, the truth here. Um, to gather with him to surround Jerusalem, it says, the, the, the beloved city. That's another way of saying Jerusalem. Where we know Jesus Christ, Messiah, will be ruling and reigning. Uh, again, if you do not hold to a literal interpretation of prophecy, then all this is really just gobbledygook. It just doesn't even make any sense. You can make it say whatever you want it to. That's why I, I again, uh, avoid this allegorical, symbolic interpretation of prophecy that so many uh, Protestants and evangelicals have went to, especially in the past, because it just makes books like Revelation really nonsensical and irrelevant. Um, I think we have to stay to a uh, literal interpretation or these books really make no sense. So with that in mind, it says clearly that the devil and those who follow him, uh, to gather them together to battle, just something like the Antichrist and the kings of the East turned their weaponry against Christ himself at 
the Battle of Armageddon described at the end of chapter 19. Now we have one last final attempt of Lucifer, the devil, Satan, and it says a multitude. Notice the phrase, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. That is really a tragic, sad, sorrowful thought to realize that even after Jesus is reigning for a thousand years, that a, a large group of people are still unconverted and in their sinful rebellion, and that's really what causes all men to reject Christ. They love their sins more than they desire to come to Christ for salvation and, and to submit to him. Um, they're willing to follow the devil. Maybe his deception involves some kind of promise or guarantee that he'll give them some authority if he's uh, successful, kind of like when he came and, and, and had the audacity to ask Jesus to bow before him and he'd give him all the kingdoms of the world. How foolish that was. That may be how he deceives these. Now, let me just say something about that phrase. It could be somewhat deceiving. Uh, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. That phrase is used in Scripture a number of times. And we kind of jump to the conclusion that it means just a unnumbered multitude. Well, it doesn't mean that. Uh, for instance, let me give you an example. In the Old Testament in, in Genesis, when God's making promises to Abraham, what we call the Abrahamic covenant, he talks about Abraham becoming the father of a multitude, and he uses that phrase, as the sand of the sea, as the stars of the heaven, those two descriptions. Well, we know those are innumerable. Well, Israel wasn't innumerable. It was a small nation. The Jews have always been a small percentage of the world's population. Uh, that's that's uh, played out later in Scripture where he speaks of Israel as a remnant among the people of the world and even a saved remnant among Israel. Uh, so don't get the idea that the phrase, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea, means that a, a multitude that we can't even number ends up following the devil. It just used to mean a large number of people, but we can't go any further than that with it, okay? I personally do not believe that it's going to be like a large percentage of the world's population. In fact, remember, during the kingdom, uh, most of those dwelling in the kingdom are converted, uh, saved people, and Old Testament saints as well have been given new uh, glorified, perfect bodies. And even those who come into the kingdom, I don't think are going to be a huge, huge number of people, like in the billions. I'm just, uh, you know, I can't say for sure, but I'm just speculating because of world population now. Um, but it, it's just simply said, it does mean, and we can conclude from that, that there are a large number. How many, could we put it in the millions? I don't know. I'm just going to say it's a large number. But here's the key. As they gather together with Satan to surround the city, uh, it says to compass the camp of the saints about. That's interesting. We know they're doing it to dethrone Christ. There would be no need to compass the city just for the sake of, of believers that are there. We know believers are ruling and reigning, that, that special class at least. I'm convinced it's a special group of devoted believers, those who've been part of the Lord's churches. But anyway... They surround the city for the intent of destroying Christ and anyone close to him that they might take over the world. Of course, that's their, their motive. That's the devil's motive. But then this passage ends abruptly just with how it comes to a final end. Notice, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, if we follow this, 
We know that Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem, literally, from a new temple. I think it's described in Ezekiel 40 through 48. That's another discussion. But nonetheless, I think this fire comes out from God the Father on the throne itself. Before Jesus was returning from heaven visibly, and he opened his mouth, it said in chapter 19, and destroyed those gathered at the battle of Armageddon. But that was not all the people on earth. And it wasn't Satan, we know, because it was just the the beast and the false prophet. But now, I think God the Father is so angered. He is, he is just so furious that this devil, who has been the arch enemy, his arch enemy since the rebellion of Lucifer from heaven, uh, he said, that's enough. Enough's enough. This is the end. And he sends this fire down from heaven and devoured them. Now, let's separate this from the next verse we'll go on to. The them would refer to all those who gathered with Satan in this last-ditch attempt, this last rebellion, compassing this, the city of Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. Um, at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, better way to say it. Uh, the devil will have a specific judgment coming up in the next verse. So it's like he says this as a kind of summary of God's wrath on Satan, yes, and on all those who follow him, they will be annihilated, if you will. Their bodies for sure will be. And the judgment that they have eternally in their spirit, their soul, will come next. So that leads us to verse 10. Let's pick it up now. And the devil that deceived them, there's the them, them from verse 9, them now, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this is really climactic because, remember, as far as we know, before this, the only two uh, personages in the lake of fire were the beast and the false prophet from verse 20 of chapter 19. And now their leader, he's cast in there, but now they're the only three there as far as we can tell. Because the next passage, a very frightful passage, uh, called the Great White Throne Judgment, we'll see where all the wicked will be thrown into the same lake. So, thankfully, we can rejoice, Christian. If you're a saved person and you're listening to this podcast and you've been going through this study, this is our time of rejoicing. This is our time of celebration. You remember, it was hinted at by several other places in the Scripture, the best one I can think of. You remember when Haman's plot was exposed by Esther, the queen, and that little gem of a book called the book of Esther in the Old Testament in the post-exile period, when she exposes Haman's plot to kill all the Jews, remember, throughout the kingdom of, of Ahasuerus, the Persian king, um, you remember what the Jews did? They rejoiced and they celebrated. In fact, um, they dedicated a feast called the Feast of Purim. It has to do with casting the lots. The pur is the, the P-U-R is the casting of lots uh, and this is, I don't have time to get into that book, but just to say that it's part of God's providence through the whole book. What I want you to see is how the Jews rejoiced that their arch enemy Haman was destroyed and hung on, his, on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And that pictures, I think beautifully, in a preview of the celebration that's going to happen. Now, it's not described here, but I have to believe it happens. That we who are saved will rejoice at the final demise of this wicked demon leader, this, this arch enemy, this serpent, the old red dragon, 
where he finally is cast in this lake of fire. And I love what it says, where he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I want you to keep in mind that statement, tormented day and night forever and ever, because if that's what happens to Satan and the false prophet and the beast when they're cast in here, into that lake of fire, there is no reason to believe that that's not the same condition that will be uh, facing uh, those who are thrown in uh, there themselves with them. And that leads me to our final passage for today, and, and one that I have to say is probably the most shocking passage in all the Bible. I've preached and taught on this passage many times. It needs to be preached on. I think every unsaved sinner, every person who's who's facing the judgment of God, ought to hear this passage. This is a frightful thing to read. And scholars have called it the Great White Throne Judgment Passage because it really is the final, uh, finale, maybe the best way to say it, the finale of all God's judgment. We know hell is dealt with throughout the Bible. We know that God's judgment, His wrath, has fallen throughout Scripture ever since the fall of man in the garden. And man is expelled out of the garden. We see the, the, the flood. We see many other periods of judgment. We see hell referred to time and time again. Jesus spoke more on hell than he did heaven, we know. But this is the final end. Let me read it. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, this passage is unlike any other in Scripture. It is so graphic. It is so literal. Uh, to make anything less than a total judgment of the wicked out of this is to really just turn all of Scripture on its head. This, again, is why I look at the whole book of Revelation as a literal book. Yes, there's symbolism in it, and we can decipher that symbolism. But if you don't hold to a literal position... In the rest of Revelation, what would lead you to hold to it here or what justification would you have to hold to a literal interpretation here? I think it fits that we have to hold to a literal, actual, physical, uh, eternal uh, judgment here because that's how the, the text says it. So notice, let's go back. And I saw a great white throne. Well, the one that's sitting on this throne, it says, and him that sat upon it. Now, this is, this is either a reference to God the Father and the Spirit uh, or Christ himself, the triune God cannot be divided. They're one and the same, one God found in three persons. Uh, so it doesn't matter if we say it's Christ sitting on the throne. I tend to believe it's Christ uh, because he is will be in a body, and this is all literal and looks to be visual, that people can see these things happening. And so I'm going to say that it's Christ sitting on the throne, but of course, one with the Father and the Spirit. And it says, from whose face... And that's why I also hold a literal view. It says from his face. Can you imagine that beautiful, tender, gentle face of Jesus? Now it's a face of judgment. Oh, I can't even imagine the fury that must have shown in his eyes and in his expression. 
it says they try to flee away. The wicked try to find a place to, to hide, a place to, to, uh, to escape. But it says and there was found no place for them. This is the final reckoning. This is judgment day, as it's been often called. But this is the final judgment. Now notice, I saw the dead. Now what does he mean? This is all the wicked who have died uh, by this time. Because let's face it, whether it's somebody who died from the time of Adam and Eve, the sinners from Cain on, even including those who died at that final judgment around the city of Jerusalem earlier with, with Satan. Now all the wicked are dead. So he says, I saw the, the dead, small and great. Well, that's going to be everybody now. The only ones alive now are believers going into this new age, we might call it, and not, probably not a good way to call it, eternity, where new heavens and new earth will welcome them. Well, now all you have is the wicked that are, that are, that are dead, and they're resurrected. Remember, no one, when they die, is annihilated. There is no such thing as soul sleeping, as well as there's no such thing as cessation or the end of someone when they die. This lie that's taught by some groups that when you die, if you're not part of their special group, you just go back into the, the ether, so to speak, non-existence. No, that's never taught. When you are conceived in your mother's womb, you have an eternal soul and spirit that shall either spend that eternity with God in his great kingdom and his great new heavens and new earth, or you will spend eternity in this place of judgment and final torment and wrath called the lake of fire. That's the only two places you can spend eternity, uh, uh, where you can spend eternity at. Uh, so he says, I saw the dead small and great. I uh, like that. Let's just say your riches and your position on earth and power and popularity will mean nothing when it comes to standing before God. Stand before God. This is a judgment that you cannot escape. You cannot delay. You cannot in any way uh, stall or procrastinate. It says they stand before God. That's a scary proposition. Standing before this God. Paul said at the end of Hebrews 12, for our God is a consuming fire. Wow. Uh, imagine having to stand before this great God. He's holy. He's righteous. He hates sin. He cannot tolerate sinners. And all those who have rebelled against him, though they've had the choice not to and could have repented and come to him, have rejected him, now they're going to have to answer for it. Now, we go into this section about the books, and I want you to see the difference between the books, plural, and the book of life. The books, plural, are some kind of record. Now, I'm not going to get into a debate whether these are literal books that are open like some big document. I don't know. It doesn't even matter. God is able to keep all the activities of man, including his words and his thoughts, as well as his actions, in a record. However, God keeps that record up to him. But I know this. Uh, he, he describes it as books because in John's day, that's all there was. There, was. there weren't computers. Uh, there weren't ways to keep things on, uh, you know, disks like we have today and, and, and uh, you know, small little devices. So he just uses a phrase that we, they would be familiar with. It simply means a record, like a person has a rap sheet, a record. He's going to open up these books and you know what he's going to do? He's going to show all the wicked, everything they've done against him. He says they're going to be judged according to their works. Isn't it kind of ironic that people today, if you ask them, are you a good person? Most people say, yeah, I'm a good person. When really we're all sinners. We don't deserve God's grace or his salvation. We all deserve hell. We all deserve to be at this judgment, really. I can only thank God for his mercy on my life that I'm not there. And if you're saved, you won't be there. Because God's going to give people 
what they got coming, what they deserve. So he gives grace now. This is the time of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, Paul wrote. That's why we urge people to come to Christ when they have time. Because if you don't, you're going to stand before this judgment. It's going to be one by one. Now, again, people want to argue and debate about, well, how long will this take? Will it take billions of years to judge all the billions of people that have lived? I leave that to God. God can do anything in a snap of a finger. If he could rapture out millions of people off the earth, uh, he can do this in a snap of time. And time to God isn't important anyway. He's above time. He's beyond time. He created time. Anyway, he judges everyone according to their works. And notice, in the sea give up the dead which were in it. Now, what does he mean? Those who've died at sea. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Now, what does he mean by death and hell? Now, you're going to see that phrase used again in verse 14. Death would be the physical bodies. Hell would be where the spirits were. Because remember, when you die lost, your soul and spirit already go to hell. Now you're simply being resurrected to stand in that same body. Sorry, person, if you think cremation will, will give you some out from this. It won't. People today, and I know cremation's a financial decision by so many today, but people have long thought that if they just got cremated, some cultures have cremated their dead all throughout time. Uh, they think that if I just burn my body back or have it burnt back to ashes, I won't have to stand before God. No, that's false. God created you from the dust of the earth. Our first father, Adam, he'll bring you back. He'll... He'll bring those uh, bodily parts back together from the ashes, if need be, from the dead, the sea. People die at sea. Imagine what their bodies are like. People die in the grave. They go back to ashes, of course. They disintegrate. But God is going to resurrect them. You're going to stand in that same body you lived in. And he said they're going to be judged according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now, what's that mean? Why does he say death and hell? Remember, death and hell were delivered up. Uh, the dead which were in them, that's their bodies were resurrected and their souls were, were united with those bodies to be punished. So verse 14, following that thought is very important. It means that body and soul, the spiritual and the physical, are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Friends, there's no other way to, to, to describe that other than a horrifying place of eternal wrath and judgment. Remember what it said about Satan up in verse 10, he shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, there's no reason to think this is going to be any different for those who are cast into that lake of fire. Are you seeing why we've so often as Christians and pastors and preachers like myself have urged and, and pleaded with people? Paul used the word in the King James, I beseech. He uses the word beseech. It's that word to beg people to come to Christ. Here's why we've begged you, sinner. Here's why we've begged you, person without Christ. Because if you end up here, it's, it's forever lost. You are forever gone. Not gone in an annihilation description of that. Gone meaning you're forever judged and punished. This is called the second death. What does he call it the second death? Well, we referred to it back in verse 6. I'll just remind you it means the eternal separation of the soul and spirit. Death is simply a separation of body and spirit. The first death is death of the body. And unless the rapture happens first, even Christians like myself will lay down our bodies physically, but that's not the big deal. He said that, it, blessed is he the part of the first resurrection, the resurrection of, of the soul. He's talking about those that are saved and the rapture as well. But here the second death is the body will forever be 
uh, uh, united with the soul and the soul will be part of this eternal separation. Now verse 15 is the icing on the cake. It's the climactic statement of this whole passage. It's whosoever. When you see that word whosoever, think of salvation in this sense, those who weren't saved. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life. The book of life, I've referred to it before and it's a fascinating study and I don't have time and we're getting close to the end of our study. We need to, to, to finish for today. But it really is a book that contains the names of all people that will ever be saved and ever have been saved. That's the best way to describe it. The controversy comes on how you get in the book or how you are blotted out of the book. I'll save that for next time. Perhaps I'll start our next episode before we jump into chapter 21 by maybe doing a brief uh, summary of the book of life. But I can tell you this, this last verse is just a shocking, terrifying thought. If you're not in that book of life, and however that roll call will be called out, I don't know how it's going to happen, but you will be cast literally, physically, spiritually, eternally into this lake of fire. Friend, if you're a Christian, this ought to lead us to evangelism, lead us to tell more people about Christ than we ever have before. If you've got unsaved family, friends, neighbors, people you work with, go to school with, whatever, may this motivate you like it should motivate me and all of us that are Christians to tell our lost loved ones and people around us about Christ. Well, I must close for today. Remember our motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people.